I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 50. Yes, 50. Peter the Great, part 5. The Great Northern War begins. Thanks for listening in. So, I know that some of you, and thanks for your tweet, Sammy, and maybe all of you are probably wondering how long this Peter the Great miniseries is going to go on for. Well, the easy answer is I don't really know, but I reckon that we're over the halfway point, and so I'm going to boldly predict that three or maybe four more episodes should do the trick. After that, there'll be a couple of standalone episodes, one on the Cossacks and Tartars and one on the Special Military Operation, a.k.a. Russia's current invasion of Ukraine. And then I'll sneak in a State of the Nation to take stock before we get to cover the life and times of Peter's successors. That's the short-term plan anyway. Before I start, some of you may have noticed that the BBC is showing a series of programmes about Russia between the years 1985 and 1999. Titled Trauma Zone, there are seven separate episodes which will cover the USSR's demise and the traumatic transformation of the post-Soviet states from state-controlled economies into, well, a kind of unchecked free-for-all. I watched the first one uh, a couple of nights ago, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, so where were we? Well, last time out, we were on the cusp of war breaking out between Sweden on the one side, and Denmark, Norway, Saxony, and the Commonwealth, and Russia on the other. And this series of military conflicts, which is now referred to collectively as the Great Northern War, would last on and off for just over 20 years and would significantly and definitively alter the northern European geopolitical landscape. 
But, as with Russia's current invasion of Ukraine, in 1700, no one could have expected either the timescale or the outcome. In the minds of Peter, Augustus of Saxony and Poland, and Frederick IV of Denmark-Norway, this war would consist of a series of quick, incisive land grabs against which the youthful and inexperienced King Charles XII would be utterly defenceless and would result in Sweden losing its empire and becoming a sleepy Baltic backwater. That then was the alliance's overall strategy, but what were the aims of each of the individual states and their rulers? Well, as we know, Peter simply wanted a foothold in the Baltic as a move towards greatness in the region. Russia could never be great in the Baltic while Sweden was preeminent, especially as Sweden possessed Karelia, Ingria and Estonia, thus blocking Russia's advance west. Frederick IV, who had only just become King of Denmark, wanted to regain Skorna, or Skane as it looks to us English speakers on the map, or Scania, the southern bit of Sweden, and a handful of other territories on the Swedish mainland that had been lost to Sweden at various points during the 17th century. Denmark also wanted to remove Swedish troops from the Duchy of holstein gottorp which was a Swedish satellite state on the European mainland. Augustus II, or Augustus the Strong, the Elector of Saxony and the King of Poland, wanted to conquer Livonia and put an end, once and for all, to Swedish economic predominance in the Baltic. And he also wanted to develop Poland's industrial base by using its raw materials and Saxony's economic know-how. However, he couldn't do this while Sweden remained in situ as the strongest commercial player in the Baltic. But there was someone else who, over the past couple of years, had been instrumental in persuading and cajoling the three rulers to end up where they were now. And that man was a Livonian nobleman of German extraction, Johann Reinhold Pactor. Now I could, and probably will at some point, devote a whole episode to the life and times of Johann Pactor, but for the time being, I'll just summarise his role. Back in the early 1690s, Pactol had objected to the way in which Charles XI of Sweden was running Livonia, and this had got him into Charles's bad books. But he failed to heed numerous warnings, and eventually a warrant was issued for his arrest. However, Pactol got wind of what was going to happen, fled to Europe, and in time managed to ingratiate himself into the court of Augustus of Poland. And once there, he adopted a kind of early 18th century Cato the Elder role, but instead of Carthago Delenda Est, or Carthage must be destroyed, being the beginning, middle and end of every conversation he had with Augustus and anyone else who would listen, his overall theme was Sweden must be destroyed, or, if he happened to speak Latin, Suecia Delenda Est. And to cut a long story short, over time and through sheer determination and consistency of message, Pactol became the chief architect of the anti-Swedish alliance. So in early 1700, Augustus, Peter and Frederick had been convinced, and each of them believed or hoped that Sweden's collapse would only be a matter of time. Unfortunately, however, things would turn out differently, mainly because each ruler and Pactol had seriously underestimated 
the new Swedish king. The first moves were made in March 1700. Frederick's army struck southward from Denmark into territory held by Sweden's ally, the Duchy of Holstein-Gottorp, and laid siege to the town of Turning. At the same time, Augustus's Saxon army struck northeast from Poland into Swedish-held Livonia and laid siege to the city of Riga. Charles was out hunting in the Swedish countryside when he first heard about the simultaneous attacks, but he continued the day's sport and then mulled over what his response would be. And the next day, the furious Swedish king, now aware that the Russian army was also on the move, met with his ministers and laid out his barely hatched plans. And those plans were, like his character, straightforward, focused and direct. Faced with three enemies, Sweden would deal with them one at a time. Now this approach brought with it a fair degree of risk in that fighting against one of the Allies left the other two making potential gains. But Charles was adamant. Young as he was, he knew what his army was capable of and he also had a strong hunch that as soon as one domino fell, the others would soon follow. So like Charles, let's look at each of those separate campaigns one at a time. So whilst Frederick of Denmark and his army were occupied in holstein gottorp the Swedish army, with help from the navy, slowly but surely manoeuvred itself into a position on the outskirts of Copenhagen. And then in July, and with the help of a joint English and Dutch fleet, they bombarded the Danish capital into submission and effectively removed Denmark from the war. Hang on a minute, though. A joint English-Dutch fleet? What's going on? Well... William of Orange was in charge of both nations, which, like Sweden, were Protestant, and he didn't want another war, however small, breaking out on the European mainland, particularly if it was going to disrupt his own carefully laid plans for his own war against Louis XIV's France. And so when Denmark's forces had struck south into northern Germany, William decided to help Charles and make sure that it was all nipped in the bud. So, all of that had turned out to be rather easy. Sweden won, alliance nil. And then things got even better for Charles, because he was then able to turn his attention to the eastern Baltic and quickly and efficiently disable the Saxon army, which had been laying, laying siege to Riga. Sweden too, alliance nil. In the meantime, however, a much larger Russian army, of between, well, it's always difficult to say because they overestimate, 30 to 40,000 men had been lumbering north towards the town of Narva in Swedish-held Ingria. Surely Peter and his newly reformed Streltsy-less army would be able to stop the rot, particularly as the Swedes had only been able to assemble a force of around eight to 10,000 to defend Narva. But the Russians, as Peter had feared, were no match for their elite Swedish counterparts. And in November 1700, during a blinding snowstorm, the Russian army was almost completely annihilated. Sweden 3, Alliance 0. The Battle of Narva was a terrible defeat for the Russian army, but Peter, although personally aggrieved by the outcome, was able to breathe a massive sigh of relief, because instead of pressing home his advantage on the Russian front, Charles still saw Augustus as the more serious threat, and so he pointed his armies south towards Poland. 
And the main reason for this was that up to now, Augustus had only used his Saxon army. His Polish army was still in place. Charles had no reason to doubt that he was making the right move by attacking Poland. Up to now, everything he'd touched had turned to gold, Denmark was out of the war, the scattered remnants of Russia's army had retreated south, and the Saxons had also been taught a lesson. And so for him, Poland was the next natural step. But, and it's an important but, while, Sweden, while Sweden's armies would be victorious in Poland, the real threat and Charles's eventual nemesis lay to the east. And although he was currently riding the crest of a wave, his decision to attack Poland instead of Russia would have a profound effect on his life and would also mean that Charles would never set foot in his capital, Stockholm, again. Anyway, all of that was in the future. For the here and now, Augustus, knowing what was coming, tried negotiating, but Charles was having none of it, and in 1701, the Swedish invasion of the Commonwealth commenced. By 1704, the Swedes had won two major battles, and Charles had persuaded the Polish electors to kick out Augustus and replace him with the new King of Poland, Charles's man, who unfortunately for me has one of those names that I'll never be able to pronounce, but here goes, Stanislaus Leszczynski. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Augustus and his army retreated across the border into Saxony and to what they hoped would be safety, but there was to be no escape. Charles invaded in 1706 and smashed the Saxon army at the Battle of Fraustadt. 4-0 to Sweden. And soon afterwards, Augustus signed the Treaty of Altranstadt, in which he made peace with the Swedish Empire, renounced his claims to the Polish crown, accepted Stanislaus as the King of Poland, and, importantly, ended his alliance with Russia. But Charles wasn't finished or satisfied. He'd got wind of the fact that a certain Johann Pactol, who'd recently been working for Peter the Great, had been arrested by the Saxon authorities and was currently languishing in prison. Peter demanded his release. Charles demanded his extradition. Charles won, and the hapless Pactol was tortured by being broken on the wheel. OK, there's a gruesome 20 seconds or so coming up. So broken on the wheel meant that Pactol was tied up and then laid on the ground and then a heavy metal-rimmed cartwheel was dropped onto various parts of his body, shattering his bones 
and causing excruciating pain. And when poor old Pactor was screaming in agony, his head was hacked off with an axe. OK, so for now the fighting had stopped. In a seven-year period, Charles had managed to defeat and neuter all of his enemies, Frederick of Denmark, Augustus twice, and Pactor, which left just one remaining, Peter. But before we move on to that, there are three questions or discussion points that we need to look into, and they are, what had Peter been up to in the past six years when Charles was engaged with Augustus? And then secondly, why had it taken Charles so long to deal with Augustus? And then thirdly, what was the European view regarding all of these Swedish victories? So what had Peter been up to? Well, he, we know that he'd taken the defeat at Parva hard, but he didn't dwell on it for too long, and neither were there any recriminations. The Tsar had kind of suspected that the Russian army wouldn't have been able to cut the mustard against the finest troops in Europe, and his suspicions had been proved to be correct. He just hadn't realised the extent of the problem. What he wouldn't do now to have Patrick Gordon back. Up to now, every Romanov administration, Michael, Alexei, Fyodor, Sophia, and even a young Peter, had tried and pretty much failed to reform the army. Yes, there'd been the odd glimmer of hope and a victory or two along the way, but most of the time the performance of the Russian forces was middling at best and either poor or inept for the rest of the time. Sort of reminds you of the present day a bit, doesn't it? And so Peter determined that this time he was going to undertake a complete root and branch reform of the military. No faffing about at the edges. Everything was to be changed and modernised. Command structure, supply chains, training, logistics, enlistment, strategy, tactics, weapons, uniforms. A modern European state required a modern European army. With those reforms underway, the Tsar then looked at the possibility of using Austria and Prussia as brokers of arranging peace terms between himself and Charles, and Charles and Augustus. But these peace negotiations never really got off the ground, and Peter was determined to cajole, coerce and financially back Augustus into staying the course, and delaying Charles' attempts to conquer Poland for as long as he could. Most of the Swedish army was obviously tied up in Poland, but there was a small force that Charles had kept back to look after Livonia and Ingria, and so Peter started to look at how he could directly target the Swedes. A partially reorganised Russian army, now commanded by the careful, plodding Boris Sheremetev, remember that Sheremetev had been successful in capturing the Dnieper forts when the first Azov campaign had gone awry, and he was given licence to attack the Swedish forces. And this time, for the first time in years, the Swedes ended up on the back foot. Important fortresses at Nürtaburg and Schlüsselberg were captured, and the Russians managed to get temporary control of Ingria. However, there was a problem. There were so many prisoners and refugees as a result of these successful forays that Sheremetev and his officers quickly became overwhelmed, albeit temporarily, trying to deal with the logistics. And one of those refugees was an illiterate 17-year-old woman named either Marta Skovronska or Martha Skavronskaya. Now, again, we're not going to get into this now, but Marta or Martha is going to have a very significant role in our story in the very near future. 
And talking of things that I'm not going to be covering in this episode, but of course we'll cover later, is that out of this sideshow being fought in Ingria and Livonia, Russia managed to obtain its long sought-after foothold in the Baltic, and in 1703 Peter started to build new shipyards and a new settlement, which would go on to become the city of St. Petersburg. And this so-called Venice of the North, in its various guises and across the centuries, would remain permanently in Russian hands. Okay, I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole there. Let's get back to the three questions I asked a few minutes ago and take a look at what else Peter occupied himself with whilst Charles was busy bashing Augustus in Poland and Saxony. Well, in the late summer of 1704, the Russian army managed to keep up its forward momentum, and after a long siege, followed by an attack across multiple fronts, on the 20th of August, the Russians captured Narva, avenging the 1701 debacle, and then went on to capture the city of Dorpat, which is modern-day Tartu in Estonia. And then there'd been a march all the way up to Arkhangelsk to defend Russia's only useful port from a rumoured Swedish attack. Peter was accompanied by his son and heir, Alexei, who was now 12 on this trip. But the whole thing turned out to be a waste of time because Charles had never intended going that far north, and didn't. No harm in spreading rumours, though. Away from the Baltic and the war, the Tsar had to deal with a couple of major rebellions, a by the Don Cossacks in the Astrakhan region during 1707 and 1708, and b by the Bashkirs, a Turkish ethnic group based to the south of the Ural Mountains between 1704 and 1711. And then on the domestic front in 1708, Peter redefined Russia's administrative areas, mainly to improve and streamline tax collection and divided the entire country into eight governorships. Archangelsk, Moscow, Siberia, Kazan, Azov, Smolensk, Kiev, and of course, St. Petersburg. The governors of each region were responsible for all military and civil matters, and reported directly to the Tsar. And then between 1701 and 1712, Schools of navigation, maths, artillery and languages were founded in Moscow and 30 math schools were also started up in the provinces. Plus, of course, running a country the size of Russia during wartime meant that there was a mountain-sized bucket load of daily tasks to wade through, all of which demanded the Tsar's attention or at least his awareness. And so, as usual, Peter had kept himself more than occupied, and you really couldn't fault the work ethic. Wasted time, like death, was irreversible. OK, we're on to question two or three, and don't worry, I'll be rambling less with these last two responses. So, why had it taken Charles so long to deal with Augustus? Well, there were three main reasons. Firstly, the Polish army fought well and was no pushover. Secondly, Poland was, and is, a fairly large country. And thirdly, Peter made sure that Augustus's financial needs were met, both military and personal, and so there was an incentive for the Polish king to stick it out for as long as possible. Also, for around a year, Charles, the king of Sweden, was laid up with a broken leg. Uh, he broke his leg when his horse tripped over a tent rope, obviously with Charles on top of the horse, 
and then the horse fell on top of Charles. Now, broken legs took longer to heal in the 18th century, if they did at all, and Charles wasn't really the delicating type, so for about a year the campaign inevitably stalled whilst he recovered. Okay, finally the third question. What was the European view regarding all of these Swedish victories? Well, the other European powers, France, England, Austria, the Dutch and Spain, were all mightily impressed with Sweden, its army and its warrior king. However, as all of them were about to become involved in their own war, the War of the Spanish Succession, there was general concern as to Charles's next steps. Would he become involved in general European affairs? And if yes, on whose side? But in the end, though, there was no need for anyone to have worried. Charles would stick to his plan of dealing with his enemies one by one. And that meant in 1707 and 1708, he was only going to head in one direction, east towards Peter's Russia. OK, that's it. We're done for this week. Next time, we'll hopefully be able to make it to the end of the war. That's the plan anyway, which will take in one of the coldest European winters on record. Plus, there'll be a secret marriage, and we'll also be taking a look at Peter's rejigged inner circle, which sounds disgusting, but really isn't. So until then, my dear listeners, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.